Welcome to Days of Roar, the Detroit Tigers podcast brought to you by the Detroit Free Press. I'm Mark Gorosh, and I'm here with Free Press beat writer Evan Petzold, who is at the airport begging for a flight out of Tampa. I think he's been there long enough. Ev, how you doing, buddy? Doing good. Ready to get a chance to, to go home. Happy to be back for a little bit. I'm not going to be covering the Houston series. I'm going to give that one over to uh, Jeff Seidel, who gladly said he'd be willing to take it off my hands so I can go home and um, you know, see Savannah, see the cats, see my mom, see my dad, You know, catch up with the family and uh, get a few days at home before the home opener, which is on Thursday at Comerica Park against the Red Sox. Um, so just kind of resetting the batteries, recharging a little bit, and uh, then we'll be good to go. We'll be ready to roll for uh, the home opener. What day did you go down to uh, Lakeland? I don't know, the day, be- the, the day before the Super Bowl, whatever that day was. So you've been down there for like almost seven weeks, huh? Feels like forever. Feels like forever. Yeah, this weekend felt like forever. I was scored 21 to 3, 14 hits and 95 at-bats, one home run, six walks, 30 strikeouts. It's not dominating the strike zone. And uh, a season-opening sweep at the hands of the Tampa Bay Rays. It was not it was not pleasant to be a Tiger. It was not. Jeffrey Springs dominated the strike zone. He did. <laughs> Their pitchers can do that. I think I tweeted at one point in time, he had thrown 21 fastballs and he had 11 called strikes. It, it's, you know, it's a little worrisome when you're taking that many called strikes and I can't even remember how many were right down the middle, but you, you and I were talking a little off air and this capacity to tunnel pitches on top of each other out of the same arm slot, it, it was pretty amazing. Yeah, it was pretty in, insane just to watch him do that with the changeup and the fastball. And the way they just able to work those two pitches. And the problem was is that the, the Tigers were just left guessing at that point, right? And, and you can't really guess. You have to have some type of a game plan. And, and it seemed like there was absolutely no game plan from anybody up there. The Tigers on Sunday, there were no hit through six innings. And Riley Green came up in the seventh and he faced Colin Poche, a reliever. So they ended up going off a, a Springs and pulling him out of the game just because of pitch count and the fact that it's really in the season. But yeah, he had a no hitter going. And then Riley Green comes in, faces a lefty and um, is able to break up a no hit bid with a leadoff infield single as a grounder to first base. And he just barely, barely beat the pitcher coming over to cover the bag and then ended up breaking up the no hitter. But it, it sure felt like a no hitter the way that it went. Jake Rogers hit a home run in the ninth inning, but you want to talk about a lifeless game? That that was a lifeless game, and, and it felt like three lifeless games. Mark, to be to be completely honest, um, I, you know, I just read off the stats. I read off some of the numbers from the offense. You know, you, you come in and you preach, dominate the strike zone all spring training. You go out and you acquire some you know some players for for your offense that supposedly dominate the strike zone, and there was absolutely none of that from anybody top down. It, it was pretty pretty rough at bats the whole way. I, I thought the Tigers were actually pretty good on Thursday. On opening day, they faced Shane McClanahan. We know how good he is. He's absolutely nasty. If I told you he was going to win the Cy Young, um, I don't think you would be surprised. And so a pitcher like that's really good. And the Tigers did a good job of, of trying to work some at-bats, working a little bit deeper into the count. But he had his way with them still. And, and then really the, the last two games were, were kind of a disaster, just with a 12-2 blowout on Saturday and then losing the way they did 5-1 to one on Sunday for the three-game sweep. It was... Like I said, it was miserable to be a Tiger this weekend. Well, uh, Jeffrey, you know, Tampa had 14 strikeouts today and Detroit walked once. 
So pretty much tells you everything you want to know about their effort at the plate. They had 14 hits for the entire weekend, three runs. All three runs were consolation runs in the two days. They didn't score till they, I think they were down 12, 12 to nothing yesterday. So, you know, all in all, a ridiculously forgettable, cover your eyes weekend to begin the season. AJ didn't look too concerned yesterday, but today he looked pretty upset. He used the word competitive, and I don't think he used the word competitive in a nice way. So I, I think you told me you put that in a story for tomorrow. Yeah, no, I mean, just just writing about something for Monday, um, just in the sense of kind of what this means. I do think we need to kind of put some of this in perspective, Mark. I think it's important when you have a team that they lose three games in a row, but not only did they lose three games in a row, they lost three games while looking completely uncompetitive. And as I wrote, without any sign of resiliency, there was no fight out of this team. There was no aggression. There was no swagger. There was no, we belong here. It, it was like, this was a little league team playing against the big leaguers and they were just happy to be there. Right. Like, and they, and they just got absolutely crushed in every way, shape and form um, in, in all three games. It, it, it wasn't pretty at all. And I think we need to put it in perspective because look, the reality is it's, it's three games. It's only three games. I think pushing the panic button is an overreaction, but at the same time, there are some serious holes on this team and there's, there's some serious problems when you look forward, especially considering their schedule market doesn't get any easier. It does not. They go and they, they get on a plane. They're going to go play the Houston Astros and they come home and play the Red Sox and they go play the Blue Jays. And then it's the Giants and, and, and the Brewers are in there and the Mets and, you know, Cleveland Guardians and Baltimore Orioles and St. Louis Cardinals, Seattle Mariners. Like those are all really good teams. And, and that's your first 40 games of the season. Things can get really ugly really fast. And, and, you know, you hit the nail on the head with the competitive piece, right? Like that's the, that's the biggest thing is, you just got to show some fight. You got you to show that you belong. For, first of all, what's a little concerning to me is, you know, Tampa has played this style of play for years. AJ was very familiar with how they play. And their pitchers are going to throw strikes. They're going to attack you. But more importantly, Tampa is looking to leverage every single time you make a mistake. And every time they made a mistake before the next hitter, I had tweeted, Tampa is waiting to leverage the mistake. And literally for three days, that's what they did every time the opportunity presented itself. They made every mistake into a glaring, giant canyon of an opportunity. And they turned one-run innings into four-run innings. They turned a 15% catch probability on a pop-up that... Everybody thought Spencer Torkelson should have caught that nobody really should have expected him to catch. And, you know, all of a sudden, the next swing was a run. And, you know, you cannot make mistakes against Tampa or you have to have enough swagger to return volley and do a few things to put them back on their heels. Detroit never did that. Not once, not one at bat, not one inning, not one anything. They got two decent starting pitcher performances, one from Eduardo Rodriguez Thursday. They got a very good start out of Wentz today. Should have been out of the inning with two runs. Foley doesn't execute. It's four runs. And, you know, you, you just cannot play Major League Baseball when you execute at that level of inconsistency. And, you know, it's 
you're not going to face teams as good at leveraging your mistakes as Tampa Bay every series, but every good team does different things well. And I promise you, Houston's going to pitch well, and they're going to hit some bombs. They hit better than Tampa does. You cannot be giving up big hits twice in a three-game series to Jose Siri. I mean, come on. This this performance was it was concerning. I mean, I had some concerns going into the season. This was, you know, beyond any disastrous outcome that I could have ever imagined. I mean, Mark, that's the thing, though, is, you know, you go play the Astros and it's Jordan Alvarez and Jose Abreu and, and Kyle Tucker and Jeremy Pena. The Rays are a great team because of the way they build their roster, because of the way that they draft and they develop and they do all the little things right. And And you're spot on with the fact that you can't make mistakes against them or they're going to kill you. Whereas, you know, for a team like Houston, look, they don't make many mistakes either. But at the same time, I mean, these guys are just locked and loaded. And you're, you're getting to a point now where you're kind of scratching your head and you're saying, well, you know, it's three games against the 2022 World Series champs. And, you know, do, do you come back home and you, you get to Comerica Park and you, know, you greet your home fans with an 0-6 record to start the season? It's, it's, I, if you told me that was going to happen, I wouldn't be surprised. I think people kind of think that's going to happen. I mean, you, you got you got to face Hunter Brown. You got to face Framber Valdez. You got to face Christian Javier. Those are really good pitchers. Those are really good pitchers with some nasty stuff. And so far, as we mentioned, the Tigers have not dominated the strike zone so far in the Scott Harris era. It's, it's a little bit concerning to me because I don't think any of us really knew what to expect out of the type of roster that Scott Harris put together. Obviously, style-wise, it's an homage to what they did in San Francisco. It's a lot of mixing and matching. It's a lot of trying to create platoon advantages. It's a lot of taking flawed players, trying to employ them in circumstances of leverage, that things they think they do well. And to be really honest with you, I you know, they have a pretty concerning roster. I mean, let's let's kind of get into it. They've already basically told Jonathan Scope, you're going to be a platoon player. You're going to face left-hand pitchers and the occasional right-hander. We're going to give Zach McKinstry at bats at second base. And I think you and I, from the moment we saw this transaction and then kind of were reading the handwriting on the wall as far as what we thought playing time was going to be, we're pretty concerned about it because it's not like Zach McKinstry had, you know, three great years of AAA and nobody had really given him an opportunity before. I mean, the Dodgers are a pretty savvy ball club and he was in their system for seven years. If Zach McKinstry was going to be a contributor at the major league level, the Dodgers sure find a way to use you and use you well to help them win. Never happened in L.A. They got traded to the Cubs on a terrible team, got 199 at bats and didn't even, you know, hit over 200. So it's not like he's had no opportunity to perform at the major league level or there's not a lot of video demonstrating the caliber of player he is. Yeah, I get that he hit 335 in AAA, but there's a lot of guys that hit great in AAA. I looked up the leading 10 hitters in uh, you know AAA West last year who had over 250 at-bats and only one of them is going to play in a major league roster this year. So, I mean, I, I get 
you and I grew up like lots of us did, looking at the backs of baseball cards, reading baseball encyclopedias, reading fan graphs, trying to interpret performance numbers of lots of players. But what you come to learn when you start doing this more in, in an analyst position or a beat writer position is you need to see guys play. You need to see them play against major league players because the biggest chasm in talent at any level of, of baseball is the difference between triple A and the major leagues. I mean, it, it, and it's not close. I mean, people may wrongly think there's a difference between low A and triple A, but it has no relationship to the difference between going from triple A to the major leagues. And, you know, I, I, the Zach McKinstry move is just really puzzling for me. He, not only that, he has no options. And yeah, okay, I get it. You know, they can burn him off in the middle of May, but it, it's kind of puzzling that that's where they're going to start hanging their hat, don't you think? Yeah, that jump from AAA to the big leagues is is unlike any other. It's a it's a totally different animal in the big leagues, as I've been told from several big leaguers who had to get through AAA to get up there. Um, but yeah, I, the, the trade really didn't make sense to me. Three days before opening day, you know, you, you cut some guys who had been in camp with you all spring, fighting for a job for for various reasons that um, you know some of them are understandable. But look, I mean, this is a guy who hit three thirty five with four homers and you know four seventeen on base percentage in AAA last season you know, 12% walk rate, almost 15% strikeout rate. I understand the idea. Like, I get it. You want to get a left-handed hitting infielder, platoon him with scope. I, I understand, like, the, the logic behind it, but I just, it didn't really make sense when it actually happened, right? Like, I think that idea is great, but is Zach McKinstry really that guy? A guy with no options, somebody who you have to trade a, an underrated pitching prospect in Carlos Guzman, a guy who, look, I mean, I understand, he, he might not be the greatest thing that we've ever seen you know, on, on a mound, but you know, he, he ate some innings last year and, and he was working his way up. He pitched in high West Michigan and also got a little taste of double a fastball sits around 94 average fastball command struggles to generate swings and misses um, outside of the zone, but has a quality changeup and it's a development piece. And, and you trade that away for a guy who, Oh, and by the way, with Guzman, um, his final 52 and one thirds innings, 1.89 ERA last season to finish out the, the the year. So to trade that for a guy who doesn't really seem to fit on this roster long-term doesn't really make sense for me. I mean, he's, he's basically McKinstry, a left-handed hitting version of Zach Short. And I know how you feel about Zach Short. I think Zach Short's a great guy. I don't really think he's the greatest, greatest ball player. But look, when the Cubs went out and got Dansby Swanson this offseason and they were going to make him their everyday shortstop, Zach McKinstry knew he probably wasn't going to have a job on the opening day roster. He also knew he didn't have any options. So he figured, okay, I'm probably going to be DFA'd and I'm basically going to be playing for my job this spring. And he went three for 38 and seven walks and eight strikeouts, but, but three for 38 in a spring training in which he felt like he was playing for his next job. And, you know, Tigers gave him that opportunity. I just don't understand. I, I understand why the move was made. I, I get the process behind it, but then obviously you've got to look at the performance and you have to understand that. Sure. This guy has raked against minor league pitching since 2019, but so have a lot of guys. There, there are a lot of guys rake against minor league pitching. It's 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 making that jump to the big leagues, and the Tigers feel like they have the systems in place to translate that from you know the minor league level to the major league level. That's what Scott Harris said. He says we we have this, we feel like we have the systems in place to give him that opportunity in the big leagues. 
and help him transition those numbers that we're seeing in Toledo to the big leagues. And after what I saw through three games, I don't know if there's a system in place to do that. It's my, my way of saying this is it wasn't the what, it was the who, okay? Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the idea behind it was fine. I get you want to have a left-hand hitting second baseman to weave in there that has high on base percentage and has some pedigree of doing it at various levels. I just you know, really question who it was they decided they think can do that at the major league level. I, I He's never demonstrated it before. And if you watched him this weekend, I'm not sure he had a good swing. So I mean, Mark, look, it, it's, it's a 7% walk rate in the big leagues. It's a 29% strikeout rate in the big leagues. You can talk about the minor league numbers all you want, but you know he's, he's had 121 games. He's had opportunities, and, and he hasn't been able to do it. But it seems like the Tigers are stuck with him now. I mean, and, until someone else emerges or until they feel like they have to move off of him, but... Obviously, you know, Scott Harris went out and acquired him for a reason. So I would assume he's going to try to ride with him and, and develop him into something, at, at least until you know, it reaches a point of, you know, you just, you got to well, send here, him down. You got to DFA him. You got to DFA so him at some point. Let's talk about a few of these roster decisions, playing time, and what we're going to see. I have, I have a few comments on that. So I'll, I'll get right to what I think is a possibility of happening. I want to talk a little bit about Miguel Cabrera, how often they're going to play him. Matt Fearling, I want to talk about the bullpen too, but he, here's what I see as a possibility pretty pretty quickly is if Tyler Nevin continues to hit at AAA and he's hit up a storm the first series there, then the next few days, he's going to get recalled. Now, initially, if I'm going to make a guess who he'll get recalled for, it'll probably be Ryan Kreidler which is a little disappointing, but I don't think that big a deal. Kreidler can go down, play shortstop in AAA for a while and get some at-bats. But if not, what they may try to do is, you know, if they decide that McKinstry really can't play, and they may decide that pretty quickly, is Nevin will play a little more. Nevin will play third base. He'll play a little more than I thought he was going to play. Not all the time, but a decent amount of time. Platoon, and, Maton, and, and scope. And, and, and they may start playing Maton somewhat at second base. Yeah. So I, I think it doesn't hurt their defense and probably adds to their offense. You know, the next move after that, if he hits, and he had an okay for a series, but if he hits, is to bring Parker Meadows up to play center field. And at that point in time, you're going to have to decide who plays left and who plays right between Meadows and Green. Because really, to be honest with you, I think also against left-handers, you know, Eric Haas is going to, start playing more left field, catching less. The difference between Rodgers and Haas behind the plate was pretty noticeable. Definitely. Um, and you know, I think Matt Fearling's going to have to start swinging a hotter bat. His at-bats have not been competitive at all either, nor have I seen him hit the ball hard since the first week of March. And I asked you a question last night, and I got an interesting answer, which was, what do you think the percentage percentages are that Matt Veerling plays games in Toledo this year. And you tell him what you said to me. Yeah, no, I felt like it was maybe 5%. Yeah. I mean, I, I felt like it was maybe 5% when the season started and now it's, it's, it's climbing. I threw out 33% chance because I'm just throwing out a number there, but that number is climbing. He doesn't look very comfortable at the play right now. Talking to him after Sunday's game, he says he feels like he's really timed up and everything feels good. He just faced some really good lefties, and that's kind of what happens when you face good pitching. But you know, there's a lot of good pitching in the big leagues. And 
You know, you're, you're going to see that a lot throughout the season, especially early in the season with all these teams that the Tigers are playing. There really aren't a ton of guys that are going to give you a break and give you a chance to catch your breath. And we talked about this uh, on the podcast and I, I've written about it and, and we've had, you know, discussions off air about it, just, you know, the swing mechanics and some of those question marks that we have, but, but regardless of those, yeah, I mean, you just got to start swinging the bat better and making better swing decisions and, and giving your team a chance, especially if you're hitting leadoff. I mean, they're, you know, he's now had two opportunities as the leadoff hitter and, you know, those haven't been productive games for him and uh, not even at all. So he's definitely a little bit concerning. And at that point, you know, if you're talking about bringing up Parker Meadows and I know we're getting way down the line here, but at some point, yeah, you have to talk about, you know, what, what move do you make? Is it, is it a Kerry Carpenter move? Is it a, is it a Matt Beerling move? You know, you, then you have no right-handed hitting outfielders. You're scratching your head yeah, outside of Haas, you, but yeah, it's, it, there, there could be some roster issues, but I, I think those things are kind of more into the future. I think in the right now, you just want to see Matt Beerling start to hit the ball, make some good contact and, um, and make some better swing decisions. I don't think it's not going to surprise me if the shuttle between Detroit and Toledo is so active that you, you basically need a bus that you're going to be, you know, loading up pretty frequently until you can find a mix and a roster that's competitive. I mean, I have the only person I thought that played with any swag this weekend was Nick Maton. That was it. Uh, I thought Baez was okay, especially defensively, and had more competitive at bats than people like to think. But good to see Austin Meadows get a few hits, though. Austin had some swings. Jakey had some swings today, but it, it, it was. It was brutal. Let, let's get to the bullpen because I, at first, as spring was going, you know, progressing, I wasn't super concerned because there's a lot of history of Fetter and Hinch creating bullpens out of thin air. But the last week was tragically bad. And the bullpen this weekend in Tampa, you know, I'm, you know, I think Cisnero threw a scoreless inning after they had already had a corner produce them, you know, pronounce them dead. It, 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 I don't know if there were any other relievers in the entire weekend that that put up a zero in their appearance. It was it was Alex, a nightmare. Alex Lang did throw up a zero. Alex Lang threw oh, up Alex a zero. Lang but, threw, Alex Lang um, threw a zero today. He did. He did. But and that's the right. list, though. I, that's the list. Jose Cisnero and Alex Lang, and both those guys. Um, you know, Cisnero walked a batter, and Lang gave up a hit, so they weren't even clean innings. But. Yeah. What was really concerning to me was anytime the Tigers have been competitive in the last two years, it's because A.J. Hinch has the capacity to manage a bullpen very well and he knows how to get, you know, 11, 12 outs and, you know, and bring home wins and he uses the bullpen to his advantage. And I just am struggling to think how he's going to maneuver 11, 12 outs with how these group of relievers are performing so all right i want to come back and talk more about this but we need to take a break we'll be back in a minute okay let's let's get back and discuss the bullpen it's it's an extremely integral part to any hinch team winning and it would seem to me that it's likely 
that who do you think is going to close between Cisnero and Lang when they actually have a save, pardon me, a save opportunity? Yeah, that was going to be the thing, right? I mean, you have to, you have to have the lead in the ninth inning to do that. But yeah, I mean, probably Alex Lang to start and maybe, or, or Jose Cisnero. I mean, one of the two, I, probably Lang just because he's the guy that's probably the most proven and, and probably your best swing and miss guy out of the bullpen. Granted, we know that, you know, he's, he, he has issues walking guys, so the walks could definitely be a problem, but, but look, it's not the same bullpen as it used to be. Mark, you talk about, you know, AJ Hinch always was talking about that path to win out of the bullpen. And for as bad as they were last year, you almost ask yourself if they didn't have that bullpen, how much worse would they have been? And, and you kind of wonder, well, is that what this season could be? Because Andrew Chafin now pitches for the Arizona Diamondbacks. Joe Jimenez now pitches for the Atlanta Braves. Michael Fulmer pitches for the Chicago Cubs and Gregory Soto I know he had 11 losses last year, but he was pretty darn good in save situations and the stuff is nasty. He pitches for the Philadelphia Phillies. And you looked at that and you say, okay, those were you know your, your, your highest leverage relievers that you had last season. And, and now you're left to Alex Lang and Jose Cisnero who are shaky um, at best. And the rest of the bullpen, it feels like it's just super. Either one day they're going to be on or one day they're going to be off. Trey Wengenter got his first appearance. I love the stuff, but he looks scared as can be out there. I mean, it almost was like it was his debut again. And I know he hasn't pitched until 2019. So I'd like to see him go out there again. And and, and he's going to get the opportunity to do that. But you're just left scratching your head. If all you have is Alex Lang and Jose Cisnero as your high leverage relievers, and you're you're, you're hoping that Trey Wengenter can both stay healthy and, and really lock it in and throw strikes at the highest level, you kind of, you kind of worry, don't you? Don't, don't you worry about how bad this thing could get if AJ Hinch doesn't have that bullpen that's going to give him the path to win? I, th- I think the biggest issue I have right now is it's getting real old. And Scott Harris seems to have brought this philosophy with him, especially from San Francisco, where he's compiled an entire roster full of players that you you keep saying to yourself, if they just get a little bit better, they'll be really good. Or I can dream on this guy, or I can see his talent. He just needs to polish himself just a tad more. And they have an in, entire roster almost of guys that are on the verge or just need to get a little bit better or just need some experience. Or there, there's, you know, just in a, besides Javi Baez, and a 40-year-old Miguel Cabrera, who looked ancient today, kind of hurt my feelings just even watching him today. They, they have an entire roster of those guys. And but Mark, in the bullpen, I don't, I don't mind if you, I don't mind if you go and you get Andrew Chafin and you resign him. They didn't want to resign him. They didn't want to bring him back. Like if you, if you had, if this bullpen, Michael, if you Michael added this bullpen, right, I, right. They didn't want, they didn't want to resign him. Didn't even call on him. So look, like if, if if you have these guys in the mix and you also supplement them with some pieces that can actually do some things, you got some fallback options. You, you feel good. You can allow these guys to develop. You can allow these guys to, to grow. But if you don't have that, you, you, you're kind of left out to dry if it doesn't work out. I, you know, you and I were talking about this and I said to you, the Detroit bullpen would look a lot, a lot better with one more guy that had, had some semblance of reliability so that they had three guys that seemed like they might do the job on a particular 
night or pretty consistently. And then the other three or four guys, because you're going to, you know, you got Mason Angler, who's a rule five guy, can't depend on him for anything. And you have Tyler Alexander and everybody will want to tell me how he struck out seven guys yesterday. And I'll just want to tell you how he gave up a two run homer and threw three and a third and gave up two runs. It was nice. He struck out seven guys. Great. So, you know, the, the point is you got to have three really reliable guys to at least have a passable opportunity to win. They only have two. And I think I used this particular analogy is that Scott Harris has made quite a few moves. A lot I really like. A lot I was willing to wait and see. But too many times it seems like he's making the I'm the smartest guy in the room move. And you would like to see a few of them start seeming like they they were clever or, you know, he picked up a guy from the scrap heap that was good. And I know it's only been three games, but right, there hasn't, right. There hasn't, mind. Yeah, there hasn't been too much of that yet. So, you know, I was a huge, huge, you know, I led the campaign to get rid of Al Avila. You know, I was first on that train and I drove the train, but, and I'm not asking you to fire Scott Harris. What I am, and I like a lot of his philosophy, but, you know, there's talk and then, you know, you got to play games. So, you know, let's, I'd like to see a little more performance. I've seen quite a few things that make me a little nervous about some of the evaluations that he's made. And, you know, doesn't mean that you can't learn from your mistakes, but it's, it's a little scary right now. It's not, uh, but Mark, but Mark, doesn't, doesn't that fall back on AJ Hinch though, too? Does, Does it not? I mean, just, you had all this time in spring training to prepare these guys and get ready. And then you came out, you come out and you, you lay an egg in your opening series and it's and it, it, it just looks miserable. And look, I understand it's three games, right? Like we might see Trey Wingenter go back out the next time and look great. We might see Garrett Hill finally, you know, get it locked in. And, and I'm not saying that Garrett Hill is going to be an all-star. I'm not saying that Trey Wingenter is going to be an all-star. Can they be at least usable? Can they be usable pieces? I, I think so. So how much of that falls back on AJ Hinch too, do you think? Any? Well, I think a lot falls back on A.J. Hinch. I, I, I think this weekend, it's incumbent upon the manager to have his team ready to play. And That's more of my point. It, it's incumbent upon the manager to make sure his team is executing the plan. You can't tell me the Detroit Tigers followed the game plan hitting this weekend. If they did, we have a much bigger problem than I, I had anticipated. But yeah, it, listen, A.J. Hinch is not blameless here. And I love A.J. Hinch. And I think A.J. Hinch can get you to the promised land if you give him a fighting chance. But at the right. same at the same time, uh, I used to laugh at Ron Gardenhire-led Tigers teams because, you know, Ron may have been pretty good for the Twins in 2007. But, you know, if, when he was managing the Tigers... You know, I, I haven't seen you know they, they, a team play dead for two years. It, it was obnoxious, and I never thought his team was prepared, and I never thought his staff was any good. So, you know, you can't yell and scream about how poor Ron Gardenhire was, and then watch how they executed this weekend in Tampa, and not think that AJ Hinch has some culpability for 
the level of intensity and the level of confidence his team's playing with. They, they, they look like deer in the headlights, the entire team. There wasn't a swaggy at bat out there. It, it, was, it was really concerning, to be honest with you. Yeah, and that's where it's going to be interesting to follow. I mean, you're right, because on one hand, you know, AJ didn't really get a whole lot to work with, especially, you know, we talked about the bullpen and, and the importance of that to, you know, what he's able to do to get a team to win a game. And he is, uh, he is masterful when it comes to managing bullpens. There were, there were guys, look, Trey Wingenter said that he signed with the Tigers because A.J. Hinch knows how to maneuver a bullpen. And they, there are guys that, that come to Detroit because they know what A.J. Hinch can do for them in terms of putting them in the right spots. You need the right players to put in the right spots. You need players that, that can perform at this level and that can play at, at, the, at the highest level. And you do have guys like Austin Meadows and, and, and Javier Baez and Spencer Torkelson and, and Riley Green and yeah, Nick Maton and you know Matt Veerling is supposed to be something. We'll see if that that happens. And Jonathan Scope has been around for a really long time. You'd expect some of these guys to bounce back, and, and I think getting them there is kind of on hinge, but also on the same you know line of thinking. It's like there really isn't that guy in this lineup that's just going to be a dude and go out and hit for you when you need him to hit. Same thing in the bullpen. You have Lang and you have Cisnero, two guys that. You know, at certain times they can get the job done. Other times they can't throw a strike. And then you got a bunch of cast offs that are coming in and you got to try to fix them. And I don't think that really helps AJ in terms of, you know, getting him in a spot to use guys where they're most effective. If you need somebody in the seventh inning or you need someone in, in let's say in Trey Wingenter's case, you need someone to come in and take over for Spencer Turnbull who couldn't get an out in the third inning, it felt like. And, and that's not a good position to put him in. Like that, that's not where you want to use Trey Wingenter for his first appearance in the big league since 2019. So I, I think it kind of goes hand in hand and it'll be an interesting dynamic to watch throughout the season as it unfolds and as players come up and as players go down as, and as we see performances evolve too, because we know that, you know, three games is such a small sample size over 162. But I think it's important to point out some of the things that we're pointing out just because you're going to want to watch as the season goes along to see who's getting used in what situations and kind of what are different people within the organization saying, because it's, it, it's head scratching for sure. And, and you just really would have liked to see him come out and play a little bit better or maybe a lot of it better in the first three games. Non-competitive, man. Just were competitive for five innings on Thursday. And, you know, beyond that, they were, you know, they were competitive for five, you know, four in a third innings today, but, you know, you don't make your money in the first uh, 12 or 13 outs of a game. You make your money in the last 10 to 12 outs of a game. And they were just abysmal, it, you know, in the backside of games these last couple of days. All right, since we just opened the season, we have to do a little prognosticating about, you know, victories and some things we think might happen in the year. I kind of always hate doing this because nobody even remotely gets it correct, but I thought it's still fun. We'll go on the record. We'll let people make fun of us in the end of September and October for these predictions, but how many wins you see for this ball club? All right, so we did at the Free Press, we did a story before opening day where we had a, a group of the writers, some columnists, an editor, we had, we had a bunch of us kind of jump in and it was uh, kind of like a round table, if you will. 
um, in the sense that we answered a bunch of burning questions. And so I have to, even after three games, I got to stick with my win total because this is kind of what I have out everywhere, but I've got him at 73 wins. I don't know how I feel about that now, but I'm going to stick with it. I'm going to ride with it. I mean, look, my biggest point that I made when I was predicting 73 wins was I said, offense matters last year, as we all know, the Tigers were the worst, you know, worst team in baseball when it comes to offense, 3.44 runs per game, career worst performances from Javier Baez, Jonathan Scope, Austin Meadows couldn't stay on the field for, you know, some injuries and, and mental health issues. And I figured, all right, Baez and Meadows, they'll bounce back. I mean, these guys are former all-star players. They're serious bounce back candidates, Riley Green and Spencer Torkelson. They're entering their sophomore seasons. They should take a leap forward. You add Nick Maton who draws walks. You add Matt Veerling who limits the strikeouts should balance out some of that production um, and, and limit some of that chase that we've seen for so many years. And so I said, all things considered seven win improvement like that, that doesn't seem like it's impossible. Now I'm curious about that because I didn't really factor in the fact that the bullpen has gotten a whole lot worse and you know, maybe that, that subtracts from those seven wins, but, but I've got him at 73 wins. I'll be on the record saying that. And I'm interested what you think, Mark, what, what, what do you got? I think I'm going to go with 69 wins, nice. 72, uh, six, six, yeah, 69 wins, 93 losses. I think the bullpen's going to struggle here for a while, but I do think, a bullpen is something you can fix and find pieces for, and they don't need a dramatic improvement from one or two guys or to find one or two guys, even if they've been left by the road by other teams or guys they pick up at the trade deadline in trades for Boyd or Eduardo Rodriguez. And I, I think the rotation will be, be okay. Still a little nervous about their hitting, but I think their hitting has a lot more upside, and I don't think they're going to be that patient with a lot of these players. I think, you know, the veerlings of the world, the, you know, McKinstry's, you know, other players, of. I don't think they're going to let Miguel Cabrera have endless at-bats at DH if he's not hitting. So... I think there's a few positions in the lineup in flux and they're going to run guys in and out. I think the rotation, remember they have not started Lorenzen yet, who I kind of like. Um, I think Wentz is going to be pretty good. A little worried about Matthew Boyd, a little worried that they did not throw him the last week of spring training and then gave him all the way until the Houston series before he threw. So I'm not saying something's a matter, but I'm not saying something's not a matter. And I said that the day that I saw them scratch him. So, you know, starting pitching, I don't think they have a ton of depth. So, you know, those are my reasons why I'm a, I'm a little concerned and I have them for 93 losses. So who, who do you think is uh, pick a couple of their more high profile players and give me some idea how you think their season might go? Yeah, look, first and foremost, Matt boy did throw on the backfields on Wednesday, but Again, I, I'm a little bit concerned they didn't just throw him in a big league spring training game. That was somewhat head-scratching, but it sounded like they wanted to get their relievers that were in competition for final spots an opportunity to pitch, and you know, none of those guys performed in those games. Um, but, but look, yeah, no, I, I think you know, high-profile guys and, and Spencer Torkelson and Riley Green, I think it really kind of starts there. I mean, you, you look at Javi Baez, you know what you're going to get out of him in the long run, just in the sense that, that you, you know you can kind of count on 
15 plus homers and you're praying for the return of 25 homer Javi Baez. I think Austin Meadows is still completely up in the air in terms of what to expect. I don't even want to make a prediction on that just because we haven't really seen enough to know. I, I was really encouraged by the way that he swung the bat against McClanahan in particular. That's a left-handed pitcher and he swung it really well in that first game of the season back at the trap where he had played for a few years. And But I don't want to predict on him yet just because I think there's a lot that we still need to find out. But I do think it's, it's Torkelson and Green. That's really what it comes down to. We've talked about it um, several times. I've written about it several times. Look, you draft a guy number one overall in the 2020 draft in Torkelson, and you get a guy number five overall in 2019 in Riley Green. Those are cornerstone guys that you're expecting to be key pieces in the heart of your lineup for years and years and years to come. And I look at Torkelson and I say, okay, he's going to improve because I don't think he can get any worse. Kind of in the same way that I initially thought, you know, the Tigers couldn't get any worse this year, right? Um, but with Torkelson, he was crushing the ball all spring. I still like the swings that he's having so far in the season. I like the swing decisions that he's making. He looks somewhat comfortable. He's not getting rewarded, hitting a lot of balls in the ground. I, I think in time, we're going to see him come out of that. And I think he gets back to doing more of what he was doing in, in spring. But, you know, at some point, the hits have to fall, right? The homer's got to fly. Uh, the ball's got to go. And love what he's doing defensively. He's, he's you know, saved Javi's butt several times last season. He saved McKinstry's butt the other day on a double play turn that was skipped in the dirt. That, that, was, that was a horrible turn. But, but I like what he's doing defensively. We've got to see it come around on offense. I feel good about him. I think he's going to have a good season. I don't like predicting numbers for guys. Um, but I feel pretty confident that he's going to get it going and, and be a key piece. And then for Riley Green, got to start getting the ball in the air. That's something that was a problem for him last season. It was a problem for him in spring training. He talked about thinking pure swing thoughts. So far, that hasn't translated to more balls in the air. Um, you know, he, he he looks fine in center field. He's not good on balls that are that he has to come in on to, to field. We saw him have some trouble with that. But again, when you're playing at the trop. That dome is a mess. I couldn't even imagine taking a fly ball out there. So I wouldn't look too deep into that. He's got great instincts out in center, but it all comes down to the bat for both of these guys. And for green, we just got to see him get the ball in the air. He hits the ball hard. Once he elevates the baseball, he's going to be just fine. The question is going to be, can he do it? And how long does it take him to get there? I think green will hit 20 homers. I think he'll be a three war plus player. So you're the numbers guy. I think Torkelson will also hit 20 homers. I am not very worried about Spencer Torkelson now, and that's the first time I've ever said that about him. Uh, I did say it early in spring training. That seemed to work out pretty well. I I like what he's doing right now. I think Maton will hit between 16 and 20 homers. I like what I'm seeing from Nick Maton. I like that he takes walks. He's got to hit some off-speed, though. He's got to hit some off-speed. I I think... Breaking balls. I, I think he'll learn how to hit off-speed mistakes, if you understand what I mean by that. I really like some of the walks he took this weekend on some tough pitches. So for starters, I I, I can't even predict numbers for their starting pitching. I, I think, you know, with a terrible bullpen, it's really difficult. You can see how, you know, there were inherited runners allowed to score all over the place by this bullpen. So it makes starters numbers look way worse than they could be when, you know, you throw five and a third and you've given up one run, you leave a guy on first and then a reliever comes in and, you know, blows the entire thing up and you get charged with another run or two more runs or 
it, it, it really skews your ERA. So it, it's it's tough for me to predict. But you know, like I said, sixty nine wins. I think Javi will be close to a four WAR player. I actually have some confidence in what Javi Baez is looking like and doing. He seems a lot more comfortable in his skin this year. His defense looks a lot better. He's been in the strike zone a lot more. And hopefully once they get over the tragedy that was these first three games and they can get into some type of groove playing every day, they'll perform a lot better. So, you know, it's it's tough to predict numbers in a season, especially in, a, in the first week of the season and, and after, you know, players that are so inexperienced and, you know, coming off a terrible week. So, all right, we're going to take our last break. We'll be back in a minute. All right, so we got a Houston series coming up. We're coming home for the home opener. Why don't you go over a little bit of who we're going to see this week and give uh, everybody an idea who, who are, who's going to throw maybe and who a little bit on the teams we're, we're going to see. Yeah, so for starters, Tigers are going to be seeing the Houston Astros first, and it's going to be Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday games. Matthew Boyd against Hunter Brown. Um, many people know Hunter Brown from Wayne State University and his career there, somebody in the backyard that the Tigers uh, seemingly let slip. And um, I, I don't know if they weren't on him or what the deal was there, but that's a Wayne State guy who could have ended up pitching for the Tigers. But pitching for the Astros, he's going to face off against Matt Boyd on Monday. On Tuesday, Matt Manning against Framber Valdez. And on Wednesday, Eduardo Rodriguez against Christian Javier. Uh, that Matt Manning-Framber Valdez matchup, I do not feel good about. Uh, the Matt Boyd-Hunter Brown matchup, I, I, I like Boyd. Boyd's a guy who I think is going to give you three innings, then give up maybe a two- or a three-run shot, and then you know, is going to get you through five or six innings. I feel pretty good about that. The question then is going to become, can the Tigers score two or three runs on Hunter Brown? And, and he's pretty filthy, throws hard, about as good as it gets. The, the Matt Manning, Framber Valdez, Framber Valdez is just so good, and I haven't seen enough of Matt Manning to feel confident that he's going to be able to put together consistent innings at the highest level in that kind of an environment, facing that kind of a lineup. They don't have Jose Altuve, and that lineup is still so dangerous. I, I don't I don't see how that goes well for Matt Manning. And then I think the matchup on Wednesday could actually be pretty good between Eduardo Rodriguez and, and Christian Javier. For your Miguel Cabrera scheduling, too, I think it's important to mention he played all three games against the Rays. He's going to play Tuesday against the Astros, against a left-handed pitcher. It sounds like he won't play Monday or Wednesday, but will be available off the bench and pitch hit, pinch hit opportunities. And then he's going to come home with the Tigers, of course, and play the home opener on Thursday against the Boston Red Sox. Spencer Turnbull is going to start that game, and fans are going to get a chance to see Miguel with his one last home opener at Comerica Park. It's a season of last for him, and they're going to let him play in that game. It was interesting, too, real quick, to just to jump into Miguel, Mark. They, they played him all three games against the Rays. I was very surprised to see that. Um, I understand using him against left-handed pitchers. It makes a lot of sense. He's not very good against righties. Obviously, his his knee is is no good. But it was in Saturday's game. The Tigers were losing by 10 runs in the ninth inning, and there were two outs, and there were available hitters on the bench just because just, why not, right? And I understand Miguel's not playing the field, but they had already pulled off Javier Baez. They had already pulled off Austin Meadows just because of where the score was at. And A.J. Hinch let Miguel Cabrera bat 
And then he let him run the bases after that because Miguel drew a walk and then ended up advancing from first base to second base on a, on a hit from you know, Zach McKinstry, of course. And, and I, I was a little bit concerned when I saw Miguel at second base. Cause I said, man, if this next hit is a, a bloop into right field, Miguel loves blowing through the stop signs. He's, he's chugging home. And you know, you always worry about that. You always hold your breath when Miguel is, is trying to go from uh, second base to home and, and trying to blow through the signs and, and make a play on his own, you, you worry about it. And so just to have him on the field, and that late of a situation was interesting Sunday morning, you know, reporter asked AJ about it. And there was a few questions fielded about Miguel and, and he kind of just said, it's going to be a series by series thing. And he's going to try to let people know ahead of time because he understands a lot of people are coming to check out Miguel for the final time this season. So yeah, that's his schedule. And, and that's kind of what it looks like for the Tigers facing the Astros. We talked about it, man. The Astros are dangerous. They're as good as it gets. They're world series champs. Tigers have their hands full. Then they come in, they come home, home opener, play Boston, and uh, you have Spencer Turnbull on the mound for the home opener. Um, Boston not predicted to do too much this year, but actually probably is scrappier than people want to give them credit for. I mean, they still do have Raphael Devers playing third base last time I looked. Trinson Cassis is is kind of interesting at uh, at first. and. You know, Boston is got some, you know, lower level but interesting starting pitching. So I think anybody the Tigers play these days, you can never take for granted how good or not good they are. So should be an interesting week. Uh, as long as we're not playing in Tampa Bay in a weird stadium uh, against a team that keeps taking our lunch money, I'll take my chances that it's an improvement over what we saw these last three days. I wanted to touch a little bit on something everybody seems to be pretty interested in and that's we got some minor league assignments this week so if you're curious where some of your prospects are playing and we should be I mean obviously Parker Meadows is at Toledo uh, Andy Abanez, Tyler Nevin uh, you know quite a few other people Akil Badu, at Akil Badu Miguel Diaz Jahan Jay, uh, Dustin Henry Malloy all at Toledo um, our buddy Raj Castillo has gone down there to see him already two times. I kind of questioned his intelligence about going for the second time. But uh, Raj is a diehard when it comes to that stuff. And you can see their stuff at Tiger Minor League Report if you ever want to see how prospects are doing. He and Chris do a great job of cutting things up. At Erie, you got Cole Keith. You got uh, Workman. Yeah, they had a lot of shortstops and second basemen at, at Toledo that you saw in spring training. But predominantly, you're looking at Cole Keith, uh, Dylan Dingler, who's on the DL, Wilmer Flores, Ty Madden, Reese Olsen's at Toledo. That's about the three. Real Dylan Smith. Pre- Dylan Smith. I'm, I'm not a huge Dylan Smith fan. A lot of people like Dylan Smith. I haven't seen enough of them to love him or dislike him. I, I think that his stuff is okay, but I need to see a little better health and a little more performance before I get too excited about it. I'm not too excited about the Tigers pitching prospects. Uh, in addition to that, I took a look. Uh, one of my personal favorites, Christian Santana, will be at Lakeland with Peyton Graham, a pretty high draft choice last year. So that'll be the middle infield probably 
at uh, Lakeland. Chase Young is going to be at High A West Michigan. Whom I'm leaving some other guys out that are at West Michigan. Isaac Isaac Pacheco is going to be West Michigan. How could I forget Isaac Pacheco? Right. Somebody we really like. So he'll be playing third at West Michigan. Go visit our buddy Danny Hasty and see what's going on there. I will say, I said this to you. I looked at the Roberto Campos, too, by the way. We can't forget him. We can't forget Roberto Campos. Roberto Campos will be getting his first exposure to cold weather uh, maybe in his life. Uh, at West Michigan here early in April. Those I think both those teams start maybe to maybe tomorrow. So um, I am a little concerned because I looked at the prospects. You know, I have never seen the Detroit farm system have fewer pitching prospects at low and high A than they currently do. It it is startling how few arms they have at the bottom of their minor leagues. It's holy smokes. And I would expect that to be a pretty large emphasis of both things they try to acquire at the trade deadline in exchange for, like I said, I I have almost never seen the bottom of their minor league, you know, roster devoid of, of pitching prospects like I have this year. And I would expect that to be a point of emphasis both at the trade deadline when they would like to think they're going to move both Boyd and uh, Eduardo Rodriguez and in the draft this year. If you get a chance to watch Paul Skeen, that's somebody who's definitely going to be in the mix to be either pick number two or pick number three. It was a guy throwing 100 in the seventh inning, so it was definitely pretty interesting. But, yeah, the bottom the bottom of the Detroit farm system – really struggling to find pitching prospects. And I expect that to be, you know, something to keep an eye on, you know, as as the year goes on. But, you know, that's, that's an idea of where some of your prospects are going to be. You can always go to, you know, MILB.com, see how they do every night. I like to do that. We'll be talking about those kind of things. We'll, you know, see if we can't get a little bit of information from coaches, maybe do an interview or two, you know, uh, you got you got some thoughts on and you think about the minor leagues? Yeah, I just think the big names to watch right now. If you're looking for when some help might be coming, um, it's going to be watching you know watching Parker Meadows and just keeping up with what he's doing in Toledo. Even if you're not able to get down there to the ballpark to see him, just to keep tabs and, and check the box score every day, just to see how he's doing and, and to see where he's at. So far, so good for him. Justin Henry Malloy is another one to keep tabs on. I, I wasn't very, you know, I, he, he didn't surprise me or anything like that in, in spring training. He kind of was, was underwhelming to me. Um, I thought he was going to come out and kind of show me something, and I didn't see a ton in spring training. But you know, he's a guy that controls the strike zone, draws walks, at least at the minor league level, he's done that. Um, so that's a guy to watch in Toledo. Donnie Sands is someone just to kind of keep an eye on. I'm not super high on him either, but um, that is a, a new acquisition that came in as part of that Mayton Veerling trade with the Phillies. Andy Abanez is another name that I think could potentially come up at, at some point and fill a void. And he's pretty good at, at putting the ball in play and making contact. And the Tigers have not done that um, so far. I know it's three games, but but Andy Abanez is pretty good at putting the ball in play. Akil Badu, of course, is another one to watch. I don't know if he's actually ever going to make it back up to the big leagues, just considering the fact that you start to get buried when you think about, you know, Carpenter beach out, 
Parker Meadows is coming right on your tail and you already got a bunch of left-handed hitting outfielders in the big leagues. That makes it pretty difficult. Tyler Nevin, um, of course, you, you got to watch him just because he's coming back from that rehab assignment and working through some things and it looks pretty good so far. So you got to watch him moving forward, especially especially as we get through the week. In terms of double A, the, the one name, and, and it's kind of my last name to watch, I, a lot of lower level guys I try to check in on, but but man, you got to just keep tabs on Cole Keith and see how he does. That transition from high A West Michigan to, to the double A Erie level, when you're facing that kind of pitching, the stuff just gets a little bit better. And that's when you kind of start to really realize, you know, you know what, what can guys handle? What can guys do? And, and Cole Keith is pretty good at hitting mistakes. Um, maybe as good as it gets when it comes to a prospect. I want to see how he adjusts adjusts to other pitches and is able to handle non-fastballs that maybe aren't in some of his hot zones and how he adjusts to different game plans because the scouting reports are going to get a little bit better and he's going to have to adjust off of that. And if he does well and he keeps raking, he's only going to move up. So those are kind of the names to watch for me at the the AAA and the AA level. And I think uh, the rest of it we'll be checking in on throughout the summer. Well, it's uh, getting to be that time. I want to just let everybody know that we seriously thought about playing 60 minutes of music after what transpired this weekend. But, you know, at second thought, we decided to discuss baseball for 60 minutes. I'm excited at the idea that Evan Petzold is coming home. You know, I might have some people meeting him at the airport and, you know, kind of like a returning, uh, returning no, favorite it. son and but you know it's not been home in seven weeks so uh and i'm sure his cat will be very very happy to to see him if two uh, cats if if both cats remember who he is so but you know for evan petzel this is mark gorash i'd like to remind you about to uh rate share and subscribe where you listen to podcasts you can always find us uh, where Evan Petzold writes at the Freep. You can download from there uh, or listen to our podcast straight off Freep.com. I'd like to uh, thank our executive producer, sports editor Kirkman Crawford, and executive producer, interim editor, uh, Free Press and Jeanette Delgado, our producer, Robin Chan. As always, I'd like to thank my grandson, Brayton Michael Gorash, uh, and Savannah. We're, we're bringing Evan home for you. And I'd like to say, let's hope for a better week. This is Mark Gorash saying, peace. Peace.